we often have the greatest appreciation for those things which we understand much about, those things of which we have great knowledge about. And this truth is generally applied across the board. So for instance, those of you who have a great love for football, even as was mentioned this morning, or soccer, or baseball, or volleyball, or any number of sports, my guess is you love that sport because to a certain degree, you have great in-depth knowledge about what goes into it. You, you have knowledge of the skills, the, the strategies, all the nuances of what goes into that sport. And so the same is true for any hobby that you might be passionate about and that you love deeply, or any occupation that you have a profound appreciation and, and respect for. To have an appreciation for something as we should again, requires great knowledge of that thing. Knowledge and understanding is needed to appreciate it. And so the same is true for ourselves as a church here this morning. For us to truly appreciate what we do on the regular here in the church, we must grow in deeper knowledge of why we do what we do. And this certainly includes the important practice of baptism here this morning. Today we have the great joy and pleasure of witnessing the baptisms of Liam, Kevin, and Jessica Qualley here this morning during our service. And as we witness their baptisms, this isn't something we should take for granted at all, but something we should greatly rejoice in, for it is glorious. It is beautiful and awesome. And so this morning, as we contemplate what baptism means, just for, just for a few moments together, my, my prayer is that our hearts would be filled with joy and thankfulness to God as they take this step of faith and obedience to Jesus. So would you turn with me then this morning to Acts chapter 2 in your Bibles as we contemplate the importance of baptism and its meaning. And again, our main goal is for us as a church to appreciate baptism all the more as we grow in knowledge of it. Before getting to what baptism is then, we have to first contemplate the context here for baptism in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 36. As we jump into this text here this morning, we are really jumping right in to the middle of Pentecost. And Pentecost is the birthplace of church. It's where Jesus sends the Holy Spirit he promised back in chapter 1 to the believers in Jerusalem. He pours out the Holy Spirit upon the believers and they are baptized by the Spirit. So as we, again, come right into chapter 2, this is what we are seeing happen right before our eyes. The Holy Spirit is falling upon all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And this, of course, will play into the meaning of what baptism means. As the Holy Spirit dispenses upon the disciples and the believers, they then began proclaiming the glories and the, and the praises of what God is doing in a number of discernible languages. They're being heard in all sorts of tongues, and they're understood by the devout Jews in Jerusalem. They're hearing the gospel proclaimed. And so the Jews here wonder, what in the world does this mean? Like, what is the significance? Well, like, we're witnessing a miracle here, but what does it mean? 
What are we supposed to think? How are we supposed to respond to this miraculous event that we are witnessing and that we cannot deny at all? Some Jews who were antagonistic towards Christ and Jesus, uh, they, they tried to just simply explain it away by saying, ah, oh, they're just drunk with wine. That's all it is. But uh, the apostle Peter here, of course, doesn't let that slide, does he? No, he says, that's not it at all. We're not drunk on wine. It's only 9 a.m. in the morning. That's crazy. But instead, what you are witnessing can be explained as we look at two prophecies of old given by Joel and King David. So first he points to the prophet Joel in chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And it's here where Joel speaks of the day when God would pour out his spirit upon all people. And they would dream dreams. They would prophesy. They would have many signs and acts and wonders done before all of them. And then Peter connects all of these signs, these acts, these wonders. Who does he connect it to? He connects it to Jesus. Jesus fulfills what Joe prophesied. And he did it as he sends out the Holy Spirit upon all those who trusted in him. And he would fulfill these prophecies as he does undeniable mighty acts before all people. His, his works were spread across the nations. Even as he healed the sick, the poor, the needy. Even as he raised the dead to life again. And not only would he do all these mighty things, but then he would also give up his life willingly according to God's plan from the beginning of time, so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, even as this text ends, would be saved. So then this is where Peter then turns our attention to the second prophecy, to King David prophesied in Psalm 16, that the Messiah wouldn't stay dead. Yes, he would die for the sins of man, but he wouldn't stay dead. He would be raised again, defeating death itself, and so give hope to all those who follow Jesus. He would be raised to life. He would be seated on the throne of God, the Father, where all his enemies will one day be subjected under his feet. And so this is the gist of the message that Peter proclaims. And really, as, he, as we're trying to summarize this message in total, we realize that he's presenting the gospel message. He's presenting the good news of Jesus Christ and all that he's done for his people. And so how do the devout Jews who hear this message respond? How do they respond? Having heard Peter proclaim the gospel, we're told that the people then are pierced to the heart. As they are confronted with the gospel message, the undeniable proof of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all of God's people, they respond with convicted hearts as their eyes are opened. And as they are convicted to the heart and they begin to realize that they killed Jesus, God's Messiah, they mourn. They mourn deeply as they are pierced straight to the heart. And they ask Peter, what should we do? We messed up bad. We realize that now. What should we do in response to killing God's Messiah, King Jesus? And so Peter replies to the masses, what must you do? Here is what you must do. Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call. This is how they are to respond. And so it brings us then to how we ourselves, even here this morning, should respond to the gospel and what baptism is and means. So what is baptism and what does it mean then in light of what's just been said here in Acts 2? As we look at what's been said, we recognize that baptism is first a public declaration to all. It's a public declaration to all people around you. But what does baptism declare then, right? That's the question. What does it declare to everyone around? What is it communicating? First, we recognize that baptism publicly declares to all people watching the gospel message that Peter just declared in the previous verses. Again, as we consider the context right around this baptism, we realize it's, it's, it's proclaiming the gospel message. It's connected to it. That Jesus truly died according to the foreknowledge of God for all the evils that we would commit. But that he wouldn't stay dead, but that he would overcome death by his victorious resurrection and ascension to the Father. And so this is all seen in the act of baptism itself. As a person is lowered into a watery grave, so to speak, so Jesus died. So Jesus died for us. But then even as a person is lifted up, it symbolizes the resurrection and really the ascension of Christ, his victory. And so each time we witness a baptism, we are seeing publicly displayed, really, the gospel, what Jesus had done for us. But then baptism also publicly declares our identification with Jesus and his saving work for us. And this is really what Peter is calling all the people here to do in these verses. In response to this gospel message you just heard, respond. Respond publicly by identifying with Jesus and his saving work for you in baptism. If you truly believe what's just been proclaimed about Christ, then respond publicly. Respond by identifying with him in faith. So don't respond with silence and don't apathetically do nothing with this message, but respond by publicly identifying with Jesus and his saving work for you. And so we find here that the gospel demands, really, a response from all of us. From every person it encounters, it demands that we respond by either publicly identifying with Jesus in the waters of baptism or by rejecting him. So as we consider what it truly means to identify with Jesus and really his saving work for us in baptism, we begin to realize that there are some serious commitments on our ends, don't we? Because, I mean, to say that we need to be saved from evil and sin means that change is needed in our life. We need to be saved out of the evil, rebellious living that caused Jesus to die for us. And we need to cling to Jesus who saved us. So in identifying with Jesus in baptism then, we realize that there are at least two major commitments 
that we are making. The first major commitment we are making in identifying with Jesus and his saving work is the commitment to really turn from evil, rebellious living all the days of our life. We're turning from living for ourselves and instead living for Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that we'll we'll do this perfectly. Not at all. We all still stumble. We all make mistakes. But it means that our aim as saved people of God, our orientation, our commitment, is to turn from the evil that caused Jesus Christ to die on the cross. And so in baptism, I am committing toward a life of putting to death all the sins and all the evils that Jesus died to save me from. I'm committing to turn from my sins, my wicked way of living, my selfish way of living, as I see that it was my sin that put Christ on the cross, and I'm grieved by it. And so this is, again, what is emphasized by Peter's call. Repent, turn from your evil way of living, and be baptized. So in baptism, then, we publicly declare that we are turning from living for ourselves as that part is now dead. It's being drowned in a watery grave even as we are submerged beneath the water. And so then this brings us to the second major implication of identifying with Jesus. And that is in identifying with Jesus in baptism, we are committing to really follow Jesus all the days of our life. To follow Jesus would have had major implications that I don't think we often see. It would have had immense social implications that were very costly for the Jews in this day and age. Because to follow Jesus right after crucifying him would be admitting that all of them killed their Messiah and King. And as you can imagine, that would be a terribly unpopular thing to do. It would certainly cause you to lose the support of your friends and family at a minimum. It would no doubt affect your business and your job as the Jews look at you disparagingly, as they look at you almost like a lunatic. And so in the commitment to follow Jesus, to identify with him in baptism would have meant turning their back on their former way of life. And it would have brought about immense cost if they are ostracized by their family. But despite the immense cost of following Jesus, we read, we read at the end of our text that many Jews would be baptized anyway. And why is it that they would do this even though it would have serious ramifications for their livelihood? Why would they follow Jesus in baptism even if it meant that they would lose favor with their friends and family and yes, even material possessions? Well, besides it all being true, I think it's because they really understood that following Jesus is the only thing worth doing in life according to Mark 8, 34. For even here, as Jesus calls his disciples to himself, he says, if anyone, if anyone wants to follow after me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me, because of identifying with me, because of following me, and the gospel will save it. And so because in Jesus' own words that he often spoke to his disciples, one had everything to gain at the end of the day 
and nothing to lose at all. And so, yes, while a person might receive hardship from those who didn't believe Jesus to truly be the Messiah King, and yes, even though they might receive rebuke, shame, and ostracization for following Jesus, at the end, what a person receives is worth infinitely more than anything a person could lose in this lifetime. And so they would follow Jesus despite the immense cost in baptism. They would give their life to Jesus and in return get Jesus in fullness of life and eternal life as a reward. And so an application for all of us who are about to be baptized or who have been baptized If you've been baptized, you are declaring or you have declared that your life is no longer your own. That part died the moment you were baptized. It belongs to Jesus. And so this means that my use of time is no longer to be used about me. It's no longer centered on me. My use of time is about Jesus and what he wants me to do for him and his kingdom here on earth. That my use of money is no longer about me and my comforts, me being entertained, me doing whatever I want, but it's to be used on Jesus and what he wants me to use his money on. And yes, this even includes my attitudes and my affections. How I feel and the things I love, it's no longer about me. It's no longer about being true to my real self, as our world likes to say. It's about Jesus. It's about how Jesus wants me to behave and respond and feel. So in baptism, we realize that our way of life is now dead. Everything is about Jesus and giving him our allegiance. Now, if this seems difficult and near impossible to do at times, you're feeling rightly. But this final point gives us a word of serious encouragement because baptism finally declares that we are not not on our own at all. We have received the Holy Spirit through faith. And this is immensely encouraging. And for all of us who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior and King, This text promises the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of you. And this means that you are no longer helpless. You are no longer weak and on your own. But in baptism, you are signifying the reality that you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit, God himself, and he is with you. And he is empowering you. And yes, he is helping you. So we find encouragement in the reality in our baptisms that the Holy Spirit is with us and he helps us. He is the one that works to change our hearts. He's the one that works to convict us of sin. He conforms us to the likeness of Jesus. And yes, he helps us commit continually day by day to turn from sin and again follow Jesus when we fail. It is the Holy Spirit that empowers all of us to be all that we should be. Because in this calling of Christ, to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus, we cannot do it on our own. We need the Holy Spirit. 
So while it may at times seem daunting, it might seem daunting and at times very impossible to follow Jesus as we should, we declare in baptism that we are not alone. God is with us. So even as we see these baptisms here this morning in Acts 2, so we can take hope, great hope, in the reality that the Holy Spirit is helping us to be all that we should be, and he will finish that work. But then the Holy Spirit that we now have also reminds us of the deep and measurable love of God for you, for us, for me. And so by Peter here ordering the text here with baptism and then receiving the Holy Spirit, I think we're meant to think of Jesus' own baptism in which he was baptized. He was baptized, and then what do we see happen immediately afterwards? We see the Holy Spirit descend like a dove upon Jesus. And so even as we are baptized in identifying with Jesus, so we too, by virtue of our union to Jesus, have received the Holy Spirit. And even as the voice of heaven then opens up, and we hear the words, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So we also hear in our own baptism that God is well pleased with us as we are united to Jesus in this very public act. So we can find then immense encouragement in our baptism and in the baptisms that we are about to witness here this morning. So even as we consider then the significance and the beauty of baptism here, just for a few minutes here together, so we are encouraged to remember at least these three things as we see it once more. We remember the gospel. We remember our identification with Jesus Christ. And we remember the Holy Spirit that we have, all of us, in union to Christ. So let's pray and observe the Lord's Supper together. Father, we, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, and all that he did. We thank you for his victory over death and his resurrection. We thank you for his sending of the Holy Spirit to us so that we are not alone, so that we are not helpless, but we are now empowered people, people who are capable of loving you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and people who are capable of spreading the message of the gospel faithfully. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you remind us of the love of God and that you help us to be all that we should be. So even now, Lord, we ask that as Kevin, Jessica, and Liam take this step of baptism, may they truly proclaim the gospel. May they identify with Jesus truly, turning away from their own way of living and living for Christ. And may they, Lord, receive the Holy Spirit and all the power that comes with him. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.